0: Hey, peace, Nix. I wanted to do this 4th of July special, Smoke in the Air, Elephant in the Room, about cannabis legalization and about a response letter I received from Florida Senator Marco Rubio on why he opposes it. Then I saw a ridiculous post from a conservative explaining the difference between Republicans and Democrats. So I wanted to include some thoughts on that. Then the FDA banned Juul Vapes and is going after vaping, which will send many people back to smoking the much more harmful nicotine product, cigarettes and tobacco. And some will go to the black market where unregulated, more harmful vapes will continue to be sold. Then, as I was working on this special, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, and now everything else seems trivial but it's not, but because of everything going on in our country, I'm going to have to get into all of these topics. So I must issue a warning. This special edition episode is going to get political and surely divisive, though this is not my intention. The divide in this country might be the most important issue that needs to be resolved, or we won't have a country anymore at all. I urge you to hear me out. And listen to my points without letting preconceived notions drive you emotionally into disagreeing before I have made my point. And if you hear something I say that you disagree with to the point that you are furious, I know the feeling. I've had it happen when listening to my favorite podcast and watching my favorite shows. Please reach out to me. Send me articles or whatever. I'm the only Aaron Akoulas on Facebook. Shoot me a message. If I'm wrong about something or fail to consider a point of view, I want to know, seriously. I'm always open to change my opinion, and I think we all need to be open to new ideas. The rigidity of both sides has us at a standstill. So please, message me if you have a point of view you think I missed or failed to consider. So, I had to get political on this episode, because it started simply as a response to one of Florida's two Republican Senators, And so I want to thoroughly explain myself along the way. And if you disagree with some of my ideas, I want you to at least consider why I would hold these beliefs within the context of the war on drugs and how this has shaped me politically, because this is the only area for this podcast's sake that I would like us to absolutely agree on. And I want want to touch on things like abortion, because I don't think being silent when I have a platform is okay, but I will try my hardest to be fair and considerate of both sides of the aisle. How about a little fun fact? Do you know where the terms left, right, and center come from? It originated in France as a byproduct of the French Revolution and reflected the seating arrangement of the French National Assembly, where it was common for the more radical commoners to sit on the left while the more conservative clergy and nobility sat to the right. The same is still true, at least in theory, today. The Republican Party is the party of the ruling elite, and the Democrats are the party of the working class. Though, as money now influences politics and our elected officials are now beholden to their campaign donors, most Democrats aren't actually doing much for the working class. I'll get more into this in a bit. This Smoke in the Air special is going to be a lot to take in and I'm going to cover a lot of areas. This was an episode I felt I had to do with drug laws changing around the country, states beginning to slowly decriminalize, Harm reduction, finally something being talked about in mainstream society, with the president mentioning it in his State of the Union address. The Moore Act, which will decriminalize cannabis, removing it from the controlled substance schedule, passed the House, and now is up to vote in the Senate, hopefully this month, and with the drug war ever so slowly possibly coming to an end. This also was an important podcast for me to do because the Moore Act very well may fail in the Senate. People are still being locked in cages for drug possessions. The FDA is currently attempting to change its supplement policies in an attempt to do what the DEA failed to do, ban Kratom, which is a non-morphine, non-lethal, less addicting, partial opioid agonist, not an opioid, but helps relieve opioid withdrawals. It has saved countless addicts' lives when they were able to switch from street opioids to Kratom. Mainstream isn't talking about safe supply of drugs like heroin for addicts, which would save even more lives. And if the, D, if the FDA succeeds, many Kratom users will turn back to street opioids, and many will die. The FDA has banned Juul, and the Supreme Court has reversed Roe v. Wade, leaving many women terrified and vulnerable, knowing that their right to choose will now depend on what state they live in. I must also note, to be fair that women who are pro-life are very happy with the court's decision. But I'll get into all that in a bit. This smoke-in-the-air special is going to get extremely political, and I don't want you to take it the wrong way, and I'm sure there will be things we disagree on, and things I did not consider, and on some issues I might be wrong, having not considered another point of view. But one area I am not wrong on, and I know we agree on, is that people struggling with mental issues, and addicted to drugs, and dying in the streets is a bad thing. Locking people in cages for possessing drugs for personal use is a bad thing. This special is a call to action, and not just at the ballot box. There is more each and every one of us can do, and for the first thing I'd like to ask you to do is please, right now, this will cost you nothing except for one or two minutes of your time, go to protectkratom.org and fill out the petition. It's just your name, email, and phone, and ask for a brief description why you oppose kratom bans. If you don't have a personal reason, just write, because Kratom has saved countless lives. Also, if you'd like to go further, there's a link at the top of the protectkratom.org website to contact Congress, and it will take you less than a minute as they have pre-written a letter so you can just hit send. But if you want to write it yourself, you can do that as well. So please, I'm begging each and every one of you listening to pause this podcast now and go to protectkratom.org and do that. If you're driving, please pull over somewhere somewhere and do this so that you do not forget it is that important that every single one of you does this because your signature on the petition could be the straw that breaks the camel's back and stopping this ban will save thousands of lives also you can google your senators and congressmen and find their contact you can and should email them about the things that concern you women's rights gun control legalization Whatever is in your heart and whatever side you are on, even if it's not the side I'm on, I still support you having a voice and speaking your mind. Let your elected officials know where you stand and that they will not receive your vote if they do not represent you. Okay, so let's dive in deep on this smoke in the air special. This is the elephant in the room. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. What are your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. So, I signed a petition to legalize cannabis and with it was a link to email my senators, and so I did. I got a response letter from Marco Rubio. I know it wasn't actually a personal response from him to me, but rather a letter carefully crafted by his underlings that goes out to everyone as a standard response on the issue. But reading it was infuriating, and the same day I got that letter, I saw a Facebook post by a conservative that explained the difference between Republicans and Democrats, and the person who posted it tagged it with the audacious line, I don't know how this is so hard to understand. As if this list was a mic drop, an exclamation point on the issue. The list divided Republicans and Democrats into two columns, and the first word under Republican was the word freedom, and in juxtaposition under Democrat was the word socialism. The opposite of freedom is not socialism, which is an economic system that has its own set of problems, as does capitalism. But I'm no economist, so I won't dive too deep into that topic. But capitalism would have been better to pit against socialism. The problem is that most Democrats in this country are capitalists, not socialists. They just may support more social programs than Republicans, which have been invaluable in helping the lower and working class. But capitalism has its strengths too, and a good argument and bad could be made for either. Our actual system functions well because we have elements of both. Public schools and interstate highways and the police and firefighters are all socialist, while most colleges are a bit of both, and the automobiles and weapons manufacturers and most consumer goods are capitalist. The opposite of freedom is not socialism, it's incarceration. And because of one of the most celebrated Republican presidents, Ronald Reagan, Reagan's Anti Drug Abuse Act of 1986 created mandatory sentences for drug possession, including cannabis and five-year mandatory sentences for cocaine possession, even on first offenses. Because of his drug policies, the U.S. prison population rose steadily to where we are now, with the highest prison population in the world. More of our citizens spend their lives behind bars than any other country in the history of the world. Congress just passed the MORE Act, which is the acronym Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, it will remove cannabis from the scheduled substances decriminalizing it and expunge the record of those who have marijuana arrests on their records. The bill was passed in the house, 224 it and 204 against it. Only three Republicans voted for the bill with 158 voting against it. And this is the party that loves yelling freedom like William Wallace and Braveheart. Only they're yelling it while disemboweling themselves. Again, I find it ridiculous that Republicans call themselves the Freedom Party when they are responsible for mass incarceration and refuse to vote for decriminalizing cannabis so people can avoid arrest. This is the exact opposite of freedom and why I would change that list to say mass incarceration under Republican and individual freedom under Democrat. We'll come back to the list in a bit. So now the Moore Act goes to the Senate where it may fail, especially with senators like Marco Rubio. And this brings me to his letter. I'm going to read his response letter, then break it down, and then I want to get back to the list that a Republican made of how they view themselves against Democrats, which is important because there are a lot of one-issue voters that might agree with my problem with Marco Rubio and the Republicans, but ultimately would never vote against a Republican because of their one issue. And that is why I have chosen such a divisive podcast topic. I've tried to avoid politics as much as possible, but the reality is that you can't be politically neutral and have a podcast about the war on drugs. The whole thing has been political from its inception. The Republican Party, with their puritanical moralisms, have been the worst. Once they properly politicized drugs as a crime issue and fed working-class whites with fears of exaggerated stereotypes of crazed black men on crack and PCP and sadistic hippies on LSD and murderous Mexicans on cocaine, the Democrats fell in line hard, because they would no longer be able to oppose a drug war that, when that would give the impression that they were weak on crime and it would cost them an election. Because of this sea change, Democrats like Bill Clinton moved further center, and to prove to the white working class that they were in fact not weak on crime and in fact were tougher than Republicans, Clinton passed the worst legislation for the poor black community than any other president before him. I'd like to read a passage from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Clinton escalated the drug war beyond what conservatives had imagined possible a decade earlier. As the Justice Policy Institute has observed, the Clinton administration's tough on crime policies resulted in the largest increases in federal and state prison inmates of any president in American history. Clinton eventually moved beyond crime and capitulated to the conservative racial agenda on welfare. This move, like his get tough rhetoric and policies, was part of a grand strategy articulated by the new Democrats to appeal to the elusive white swing voters. In doing so, Clinton, more than any other president, created the current racial undercast. So I read this so that it's understood that Democrats have been awful as well. But this is because of the drug war and the amount of propaganda launched at the public. And the drug war began with the conservative racist Harry Anslinger, who was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, then really became a war with Republican President Richard Nixon, who created the current scheduling system, and then became a literal war on the people to the 10th degree with Republican President Ronald Reagan. And few politicians have resisted it since, Republicans and Democrats alike. Biden helped pass the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, commonly referred to as the Crime Bill which led to more prison sentences, more prison cells, and more aggressive policing, especially hurting black and brown Americans. But it should be noted that this bill was largely supported in the black communities and by black politicians. They were trying to solve the violent crime and crack problem in black neighborhoods and did what politicians do and made the problem worse with seemingly good intentions. And this is because politicians operate on fear and feed off of hysteria and rarely look at the science and data in order to solve problems. If they had asked sociologists and scientists how to solve the problem, they would have realized that the solution laid in more funding for schools and job training and decriminalizing drugs and offering help rather than prison for drugs. So I know I have called Republicans the party of mass incarceration and Democrats the party of personal freedom, but clearly it is not as simple as that. That statement is as biased as the original on the list proclaiming Republicans to be the party of freedom. Individual liberties tend to be more important to Democrats and mass incarceration happened because of a drug war started by Republicans. So that is my point, but Democrats have contributed far too much to mass incarceration to be let off the hook. Also, I have to note that many Democrats are more conservative than liberal, and there is a whole huge group of conservatives who fight for individual freedoms, and they are the libertarians. But it isn't all the Democrats who moved to the center and were proponents of the drug war. Wherever you find politicians in Washington fighting to decriminalize drugs, to reduce mandatory sentences, to stop mass incarceration, and criminal records for nonviolent drug offenses, it's the Democrats. Republicans almost entirely support the current drug laws, militarized police, mass incarceration, and almost uniformly vote against legalizing cannabis. So let's hear what explanation Marco Rubio gave for this. Dear Mr. Akulis, Thank you for taking the time to express your thoughts regarding the classification of marijuana. Understanding your views helps me to better represent Florida in the United States Senate, and I appreciate the opportunity to respond. I am open to medicinal uses of marijuana if it is rigorously tested by the Food and Drug Administration and found to have a proven medical benefit. But I do not support legalizing recreational marijuana. The message legalization or decriminalization sends to Americans, especially younger Americans, is that marijuana is safe. America's substance abuse crisis is well-documented, and the use of illicit narcotics has a profoundly negative impact on our society, especially for children and those who are most vulnerable. False notions of safe use will only exacerbate the problem. It is important to remember that the recreational and medical use of marijuana remains illegal under federal law, even though some states have legalized its use. The federal government continues to have an important role in combating drug trafficking and dismantling the criminal networks that bring marijuana and other drugs into the United States. I understand that many people suffering from serious ailments have stated that marijuana can provide them with significant relief. If the best medical evidence supports medical uses for marijuana, The federal government should not stand in the way. To that end, on March 24, 2022, the Senate passed by unanimous consent the Cannabinoidal and Marijuana Research Expansion Act, which aims to expand research on medical cannabis and marijuana usage. The bill now must be considered and passed by the U.S. House of Representatives. I remain open to policy changes that facilitate expeditious approval of new medicines for patients who need them under the care and supervision of licensed doctors as appropriate. Please know that as scientific research and data on medicinal marijuana use become available, I will continue to assess related legislative proposals. It is an honor and a privilege to serve you as your United States Senator I will keep your thoughts in mind as I consider these issues and continue working to ensure America remains a safe and prosperous nation. Sincerely, Marco Rubio. Okay. So he opens with thanking me, saying that understanding my views helps him better represent my state in the Senate. This is laughable. If he had any intention on representing the people, he would support legalization when three out of four Florida voters support legalization. But he goes on to say that he does not support legalizing recreational marijuana. He says the message that legalization or decriminalization sends to Americans, especially younger Americans, is that marijuana is safe. Safe is actually a much more vague word than you might think at first. There are dangers to all drug use, including caffeine, and even non-psychoactive substances like sugar. There are dangers to skateboarding and swimming and playing sports. Marijuana compared with alcohol or playing football is extremely safe. Comparing eating a potent marijuana edible with drinking a cup of coffee, maybe it's not as safe. But in the context of Marco's letter for deciding on whether cannabis is not safe enough to be decriminalized, or said another way, dangerous enough to be arrested and locked in a cage for having on your possession, marijuana is most definitely safe. It's most definitely safe enough for adults to decide for themselves whether they will or will not use it. And the concern for young Americans is a common political tool to scare parents into agreement because the thought of harming their children is unthinkable. But cannabis on the black market is much easier for a young person to purchase. These dealers may also have other drugs like cocaine or opiates for sale as well. Also, the THC vape pens on the black market are unregulated and some contain dangerous fillers that can cause health problems. And some contain synthetic cannabinoids that can be more addictive and even deadly. Also, these young people that, cho- that choose to use a scheduled substance are at risk of being arrested and slapped with a criminal record permanently causing employment problems. I know all of these things to be true. I started using cannabis in the 90s when I was a teenager before any state had legalized. And I never had a problem finding it. I was offered many other drugs by pot dealers and I was arrested and have a permanent criminal record that has stopped me from uh, employment many times. So Rubio's argument that his stance is considerate of young people's well-being isn't just flawed, it's completely backwards. He is effectively hurting young people with his stance on legalization. He then goes on to talk about America's substance abuse crisis. Note that he was careful not to call it an opioid crisis, even though it is opioids and combinations of opioids and prescription drugs like Xanax and most definitely not cannabis, that is killing people. He said false notions of safe use will only exacerbate the problem, especially for young people, again, using children to win support, when in fact, if people switched from street opioids to cannabis, the problem would be solved. Also, the entire crisis that he speaks of is happening under heavy prohibition, and it's the lack of safe supply of opioids that is causing these deaths. He then says that it is important to remember that marijuana is still federally illegal and that the federal government has an important role combating drug trafficking and dismantling the criminal networks. This is absolutely infuriating. Remember that marijuana is federally illegal? How can I forget? And Marco Rubio is my senator, and he is about to vote on the Moore Act. This is why I wrote him in the first place. I'm asking him to vote to change its legal status. And the federal government is failing miserably in fighting the drug war. Reagan promised when he passed the Anti Drug Abuse Act in 1986 that America would be drug free by 1995. There are more drugs and far more potent drugs in the streets now than ever before, and these criminal organizations the government is trying to dismantle are funded by drug money. If you want to dismantle their network, legalize and regulate the market. This is common sense. He then goes on to explain that he supports its medical use only, of course, if it's thoroughly researched and tested nothing wrong with that, but I'm sick of the medical use-only bullshit. It has plenty of medicinal properties, and we know this to be true, though cannabis is still a Schedule I drug, meaning that it is scheduled as a substance with absolutely no medicinal value. But here's the thing. I didn't write the senator to talk about medicinal marijuana. We already have that in our state, and that discussion is over here in Florida. I want recreational, and not just for me, but especially for minorities who are at risk of being arrested for possession and the poor and marginalized who can't afford the doctor visits and cost of a medical card. Medicinal marijuana is medicinal for a lot of people, but it's also legal recreational use for those with money, while those without are still being arrested. Also, I want the criminal records of those convicted of cannabis to be expunged. We are a state that makes most of its money in tourism, which is vacationers coming to our beaches and spending their money on hotels, food, and alcohol. Alcohol is far more dangerous than cannabis. Also, I'd like to point out to Mr. Rubio a misspelling in his bill. He said they just passed the Cannabinoidal and Marijuana Research Expansion Act, and marijuana is spelled with an H instead of a J. This was the spelling it was first when it was first criminalized in 1937 with the Marijuana Tax Act. They spelled it this way to emphasize the Spanish sound of the word marijuana to appeal to people's racism against Mexican immigrants. Now, eighty-five years later, with a growing fear and resentment coming from the right about Mexican immigrants, a Republican senator who doesn't support legalization tells me happily about a bill they passed spelling marijuana racistly. Hmm. And I have to point out that Marco Rubio is Cuban-American, so I'm not calling him racist. I'm just thinking if he knew the history of the spelling, maybe he would have spelled it differently. He then goes on to explain more about his openness to expanding medical marijuana as the research grows, even though I never wrote him about medicinal. And then he leaves it with what a pleasure it is to serve me as my senator, which is bullshit because it's quite clear that he doesn't serve me. He serves his campaign donors And unfortunately, this is the biggest problem in U.S. politics, and it's not a Republican thing. It's a problem equally as bad on both sides of the aisle. This is the reason Biden isn't coming through on his campaign promise to decriminalize. And if he doesn't, my next one of these might just be a Let's Go Brandon special. And of course, I'm joking. I despise that euphemism because it is divisive and it belongs to this new normal where people are proud of their hate. But still... I have a huge problem with the president that comes straight up lies to us about something so important to me. So, this brings me back to the Republican Democrat column. I want to point out that Democrats trying to appeal to working class white voters have been just as bad as Republicans in the drug war, Clinton being one of the worst. But this is because, as I said earlier, once Reagan politicized the drug issue and linked drugs with crime, which is only true in a black market, think Al Capone under prohibition, he opened a Pandora's box that is. Almost impossible to close, and if any legitimate candidate for the DNC came out as opposing the drug war, he would be demolished at the polls because the right would run a slew of ads proclaiming them pro-drug and weak on crime. And at the same time, they would lose the money necessary to counter the ads because so many campaign donors have invested interest in keeping the drug war going. Big pharma, big alcohol, private prisons, law enforcement— even seemingly unrelated industries like cotton and paper and makeup manufacturers have fought to keep hemp illegal because it would be too competitive as its fibers make for cheap clothing, paper, and plastics, and its oils could replace key ingredients in mascara products. And hemp, which has just finally be- has been become federally legalized, we're finally seeing it in the site for the drug war, but you need a telescope to see it. I mean, and hemp, when it was outlawed, I mean, hemp is a sister plant to the cannabis sativa, and it's um, it doesn't have enough THC to get you high. It doesn't have enough psychoactive drug to get you high, but it was still outlawed. And that's because of invested corporate interests. So anyway, when I go over this Republican versus Democrat list, I'm talking about Democrats like the ones today in Congress that now support ending the drug war. And I'm talking about the people and not just the politicians. I would prefer the term liberal but now we have some far-left wackadoos that are making that word unattractive. I'll explain what I mean as I go on, and I will try and not rewrite the list as to be as obviously biased as the person who posted the original list, and I'll try to be more honest because there are problems on both sides of the aisle. I am using this list as a template for the bulk of a podcast pointed at calling out Republicans like Marco Rubio and the all but three in Congress that voted against the Moore Act. But this is not a podcast telling you to vote Democrat or change sides or to further divide. I will be calling out the DNC as well, as they have too been a part of the problem. What is the purpose of this episode if not to direct your vote at the ballot box? It's to inform on where the parties lie on the drug war, and to force you to examine Republicans and Democrats alike. And my main focus is to urge you to send informed letters to your congressmen and senators. They need to know that you know what's going on and that you will not vote for them because they have an elephant or a donkey beside their names. That you vote with your conscience and that you're informed of how they represent you and that you pay attention to the bills they vote on. I have sent a response letter to Marco Rubio's response letter. I have sent Rick Scott and our governor DeSantis letters. And I have written my congressman, Republican Byron Donalds, and I will continue to write them every month. I will vote in the primaries and general election, and I will meet with local political action groups. This podcast is to inform my listeners politically on the war on drugs and to urge you to write letters and speak out. So like I said... I'm using this bias list as a template to guide this conversation, and a lot of the issues don't relate to the drug war, but they are important to debunk some of the right-wing claims because one-issue voters may ignore the problems the war on drugs has created in favor of the one issue they think is more important. But I think they're not understanding where liberals like me actually stand. So I want to break down the way conservatives view liberals and correct some of these assumptions. I'll refer to the list I saw online as the elephant list. I will not cover the entire list as some of the things are ridiculous, and I don't want this podcast to be five hours long. So, the elephant list starts with the word freedom under Republican and the word socialism under Democrats. So, as I explained earlier, I would rewrite that as under Democrat individual freedom, under Republican mass incarceration. Next on the elephant list gratitude for America beneath Republican, and apologize for America. Under Democrat. There is some truth to this one. But when conservatives say liberals apologize for America, they say this in a way that basically accuses liberals of hating America. And it's much more complex than this. Yes, some of the things us liberals don't like about this country, we also hate, like systemic racism, drone strikes that land on weddings and hospitals in the Middle East, and of course, the war on drugs. And I hear a lot of hate for this government coming from conservatives, too. They chant, fuck the president. They hate most of Congress and the Senate, and they hate people voting without IDs. But would I say they hate America? Maybe they don't love the same America, but chanting, fuck the president, would be just as easy to call hating America as a liberal saying America has a past worth apologizing for. No. No. But them not feeling the need to apologize for anything America has done makes them either ignorant of the things our country has done or sociopathic. I do think our country is flawed. We care more about our right to own guns than we care about the lives of our children. We have more people locked in cages than any other country on the planet. That's more people in prison than China has and not per capita. We have more prisoners than China, and they have six times the amount of people and live in a dictatorship. We have the highest illiteracy rates of all first world nations. I think we could do better than we are. But I do not hate America. I am an American. I love this country. You can hear that. I don't know if you can hear that thunder outside, but I'm down here in Florida in the summer. We got one of those wonderful afternoon showers coming in. I love that sound of the thunder. It's so soothing, you know. Um, anyway, it's been, this country has been good to me, uh, for the most part, you know, despite being arrested multiple times for possessing drugs, which makes me hesitant in yelling freedom from the mountaintop, like so many right-wing people do. Also, I'm a white man and that has contributed to how good this country has been to me. And the reason liberals feel the need to apologize for America is, at least it's been my experience and is the case with me, We try to view history objectively, and some of the things that we see as awful, we want to learn more about because it boggles the mind, and because we want to learn from the mistakes of our past so that we do not repeat them. And we ultimately want a better world. When I study the drug war, reading books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, as she explains in great detail, referencing every statistic and study she prints that systemic racism is just as alive today as 100 years ago, I believe it. And read another passage from her book, The New Jim Crow. This, in brief, is how the system works. The war on drugs is the vehicle through which extraordinary numbers of black men are forced into the cage. The entrapment occurs in three distinct phases. The first stage is the roundup. Vast numbers of people are swept into the criminal justice system by the police, who conduct drug operations primarily in poor communities of color. They are rewarded in cash through drug, drug forfeiture laws and federal grant programs for rounding up as many people as possible, and they operate unconstrained by constitutional rules of procedure that once were considered inviolate. Police can stop, interrogate, and search anyone they choose for drug investigations, provided they get consent. Because there is no meaningful check on the exercise of police discretion, racial biases are granted free reign. In fact, police are allowed to rely on race as a factor in selecting whom to stop and search, even though people of color are no more likely to be guilty of drug crimes than whites, effectively guaranteeing that those who are swept into the system are primarily black and brown. The conviction marks the beginning of the second phase, the period of formal control. Once arrested, Defendants are generally denied meaningful legal representation and pressured to plead guilty, whether they are or not. Prosecutors are free to load up defendants with extra charges, and their decisions cannot be challenged for racial bias. Once convicted due to the drug war's harsh sentencing laws, drug offenders in the United States spend more time under the criminal justice system's formal control, in jail or prison, on probation or parole, than drug offenders anywhere else in the world. While under formal control, virtually every aspect of one's life is regulated and monitored by the system, and any form of resistance or disobedience is subject to swift sanction. This period of control may last a lifetime, even for those convicted of extremely minor nonviolent offenses, but the vast majority of those swept into the system are eventually released. They are transferred from their prison cells to a much larger, invisible cage. The final stage has been dubbed by some advocates as the period of invisible punishment. This term, first coined by Jeremy Travis, is meant to describe the unique set of criminal sanctions that are imposed on individuals after they step outside the prison gates, a form of punishment that operates largely outside of public view and takes effect outside the traditional sentencing framework. These sanctions are imposed by operation of law rather than decisions of a sentencing judge. Yet they often have a greater impact on one's life course than the months or years one actually spends behind bars. These laws operate collectively to ensure that the vast majority of convicted offenders will never integrate into mainstream white society. They will be discriminated against legally for the rest of their lives, denied employment, housing, education, and public benefits. Unable to surmount these obstacles, most will eventually return to prison and then be released again caught in a closed circuit of perpetual marginality. When we think about systemic racism and how a militarized police force is waging a war in black neighborhoods and we constantly see black men unarmed being shot by police officers, I understand why Colin Kaepernick took the knee. And when this happened, the right-wing people went berserk. And this brings us to flag worship that is now rampant on the right, They have, in a way, hijacked the American flag as a symbol of patriotism that belongs to Republicans. I'm sure you've seen the stickers and t-shirts, if this flag offends you, I'll help you pack. They love sporting the, if you don't like it, you can leave. Lots to unpack here. No pun intended. First, if I were actually offended by a flag, would you actually help me move? Is that a real offer or just a douchey shirt? I use the word douchey because it virtue signals to other right-wingers without proclaiming to be anything other than American. But it's the right-wing wearing the angry flag shirts. It also suggests to other right-wingers that liberals are offended by the flag. We aren't. We think hugging the flag is less important than upholding the things the flag stands for, like the Constitution and democracy, Also, Kaepernick took the knee not out of disrespect for the national anthem, but to exercise his freedom of speech and signal to his fans that there was a problem in this country and his people were being targeted unfairly by police officers. People lost their minds. My brother fought for that song. No, he didn't. He fought for what that song stood for, which is the Constitution and a free country where you can take a knee. People said... They should all be forced to stand. I even heard some more radical right-wingers saying they should be locked up and even shot. That is exactly what could happen in a place like North Korea and is exactly what our troops signed up to fight against. So when studying history, there is definitely a lot that our country has to apologize for. And racism and how we treat minorities is at the top of the list. When liberals claim something is racist, conservatives think out loud that that claim is bullshit and that racism is over. We had a black president, for Christ's sake. I only have to point out that he is literally the only president we had that his citizenship was questioned. But that's just a small fraction of the underlying problem and black exceptionalism, where our society allows for an abundance of success to happen to a small percentage of black people, as to have proof of racism's end to point at. At the same time, they can ignore the fact that 40% of prisons house black men when they only make up 6% of the population. I'm going to read another excerpt from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Highly visible examples of black success are critical to the maintenance of a racial caste system in the era of colorblindness. Black success stories lend credence to the notion that anyone, no matter how poor or how black you may be, can make it to the top if only you try hard enough. These stories prove that race is no longer relevant. Whereas black success stories undermine the logic of Jim Crow, they actually reinforce the system of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration depends for its legitimacy on the widespread belief that all those appear trapped at the bottom actually chose their fate. When people say America has perfected racism, this is what they mean. America operates as a country that benefits the white ruling class and keeps minorities poor and marginalized and even has legal forms of slavery where prisoners work for pennies. And this new Jim Crow is operating under the guise of colorblindness, giving our citizens the illusion that racism is over. Ask any random person if they think life in America is is as bad today for an African-American as it was a hundred years ago. And even most African-Americans would say they believe it's much better now. And there are many areas we have improved, but some of these areas are misleading. Black people got the right to vote with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Still, however, many people are denied the right to vote because of felony convictions. Half the states have changed these laws to allow voting for felons. But still, in 2020, 5.2 million Americans remained ineligible. My state, Florida, despite a 2018 ballot referendum that promised to restore their voting rights, remains the nation's disenfranchisement leader with 1.1 million people currently banned from voting. One in 16 African Americans of voting age is disenfranchised, a rate 3.7 times greater than that of non-African Americans. This rate varies by state. In seven states, Alabama, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, Tennessee, Virginia, and Wyoming, more than one in seven African Americans is disenfranchised. I'm going to read again from the new Jim Crow. Both caste systems were born in part due to a desire among white elites to exploit the resentments, vulnerabilities, and racial biases of poor and working class whites for political or economic gain. Segregation laws were proposed as part of a deliberate and strategic effort to deflect anger and hostility that had been brewing against the white elite, away from them and toward African Americans. The birth birth of mass incarceration can be traced to a similar political dynamic. Conservatives in the 1970s and 80s sought to appeal to the racial biases and economic vulnerabilities of poor and working class whites through racially coded rhetoric on crime and welfare. In both cases, the racial opportunists offered few, if any, economic reforms to address the legitimate economic anxieties of poor and working-class whites, proposing instead a crackdown on the racially defined others. In the early years of Jim Crow, conservative white elites competed with each other by passing even more stringent and oppressive Jim Crow legislation. A century later, politicians in the early years of the drug war competed with each other to prove who could be tougher on crime by passing even harsher drug laws. A thinly veiled effort to appeal to poor and working class whites who once again proved they were willing to forego economic and structural reform in exchange for an apparent effort to put blacks back in their place. The most obvious parallel between Jim Crow and mass incarceration is legalized discrimination. And she also says, Another dimension of disenfranchisement echoes not so much Jim Crow as slavery. Under the usual residence rule, the Census Bureau counts imprisoned individuals as residents of the jurisdiction in which they are incarcerated. Because most new prison construction occurs in predominantly white rural areas, white communities benefit from inflated population totals at the expense of the urban overwhelmingly minority communities from which the prisoners come. This has enormous consequences for the redistricting process. White rural communities that house prisons wind up with more people in state legislatures representing them, while poor communities of color lose representatives because it appears their population has declined. This policy is disturbingly reminiscent of the Three Fifths Clause in the original Constitution, which enhanced the political clout of slaveholding states by including 60% of slaves in the population base for calculating. Congressional seats and electoral votes, even though they could not vote. I'm going to go to another section. And she goes, she says, This difference in public attitudes has important implications for reform efforts. Claims that mass incarceration is analogous to Jim Crow will fall on deaf ears and alienate potential allies if advocates fail to make clear that the claim is not meant to suggest or imply that supporters of the current system are racist in the way Americans have come to understand that term. Race plays a major role, indeed a defining role, in the current system, but not because of what is commonly understood as old-fashioned, hostile bigotry. This system of control depends far more on racial indifference, defined as a lack of compassion and caring about race and racial groups than racial hostility. A feature it actually shares with with its predecessors. An interracial caste system may seem like an oxymoron. What kind of racial caste system includes white people within its control? The answer a racial caste system in the age of colorblindness. We as a nation seem comfortable with 90% of the people arrested and convicted of drug offenses in some states being African American. But if the figure were 100%, the veil of colorblindness would be lost. We could no longer tell ourselves stories about why 90% might be a reasonable figure, nor could we continue to assume that good reasons exist for extreme racial disparities in the drug war, even if we are unable to think of such reasons ourselves. I'm going to skip on to this next page. Once again, complicity with the prevailing system of control may seem like the only option. Parents and school teachers counsel black children that, if they ever hope to escape this system and avoid prison time, they must be on their best behavior, raise their arms and spread their legs for the police without complaint, stay in failing schools, pull up their pants, and refuse all forms of illegal work and money-making activity, even if jobs in the legal economy are impossible to find. Girls are told not to have children until they are married to a good black man who can provide for a family with a legal job. They are told to wait and wait for Mr. Wright, even if that means, in a jobless ghetto, never having children at all. When black youth find it difficult or impossible to live up to these standards, or when they fail, stumble, and make mistakes, as all humans do, shame and blame is heaped upon them. If only they had made different choices, they're told sternly, they wouldn't be sitting in a jail cell. They'd be graduating from college. Never mind that white children on the other side of town who made precisely the same choices, often for less compelling reasons, are in fact going to college. The genius of the current caste system, and what most distinguishes it from its predecessors, is that it appears voluntary. People choose to commit crimes, and that's why they are locked up or locked out, we are told. This feature makes the politics of responsibility particularly tempting, as it appears the system can be avoided with good behavior. But herein lies the trap. All people make mistakes. All of us are sinners. All of us are criminals. All of us violate the the law at some point in our lives. In fact, if the worst thing you have ever done is speed 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway, you have put yourself and others at more risk of harm than someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of his or her living room. Yet there are people in the United States serving life sentences for first-time drug offenses, something virtually unheard of anywhere else in the world. And read one last thing here. The economic collapse of inner city black communities could have inspired a national outpouring of compassion and support. A new war on poverty could have been launched. Economic stimulus packages could have sailed through Congress to bail out those trapped in jobless ghettos to no fault of their own. Education, job training, public transportation, and relocation assistance could have been provided so that youth of color would have been able to survive the rough transition to a new global economy and secure jobs in distant suburbs. Constructive interventions would have been good not only for African-Americans trapped in ghettos, but also for blue-collar workers of all colors, many of whom were suffering too, if less severely. A wave of compassion and concern could have flooded poor and working-class communities in honor of the late Martin Luther King Jr. All of this could have happened, but it didn't. Instead, we declared a war on drugs. So, in reading this, I would hope you'd agree that apologies need to be made and laws need to change. Our country is still operating on a racist caste system. Our nation's history is full of racism, and it wasn't just white on black. I'm going to diverge for a moment, but this road will lead back to my final point on the topic. We became a place in the 19th and 20th century that inspired the rest of the world. We were innovative, and we had a democratic capitalist system that the world had never seen, where a person born poor could rise to riches beyond their wildest dreams. And this is the America that I believe the Trump voters were talking about with their great again hats. Back to a time when we produced things here, and there is nothing wrong with this, the problem is that the world is changing. And with globalization, we cannot go back to the way it was. And we still are a world leader in innovation, but most of it happens in Silicon Valley. And the work is done by the college educated. And so the old American dream of being born poor and rising to riches isn't as easy. And a lot of poor and lower middle class working of the working class are upset. And they have a right to be. And then we have politicians on the left talking about using tax money to wipe away college loan debt, which will do nothing to help the working class, at least at first. And so I do feel liberals can be out of touch with this. But back to racism and why I brought up America being an inspiration to the world. It drew in people from all over, the Chinese, the Irish, the Scottish, Italians, Dutch. All of these separate cultures descending on America created what we now call a melting pot. And with all this diversity came racial epithets and racist jokes and systemic racism. Over time, the different groups' children going to school together and working together and communities merging created integration into a more defined American culture. And for the most part, the racism between these groups subsided. But the group of immigrants that suffered the worst and found it the hardest to assimilate was the one group that didn't migrate by choice the African immigrants were brought in chains and were never fully allowed to assimilate. I hear people all the time make comments on the way black kids dress and talk and how their music isn't music and why do they name their children un un American, African-sounding names. After slavery ended, black people tried to assimilate. They wanted to be a part of society and go to church and school and be regular Americans, but they were constantly told they were not as smart and could not go to the same schools or live in the same neighborhoods, And then when laws changed outlawing discrimination, they moved to the cities to get jobs in factories and live in white neighborhoods. And the whites had more money from less oppression and could afford automobiles. And because they feared the blacks moving into their neighborhoods, they moved to the suburbs and took their money with them. When globalization happened and the factories in the cities closed shop, the inner city neighborhoods became ghettos, and they got no help from the government, as Michelle Alexander pointed out. Instead, government decided at the same time that the factories were closing that it was time to wage a war on drugs which ended up translating into a war directed at the inner-city black people and usually when the US wages a war like this like a war on poverty or a war on illiteracy it isn't a military war and the word war is metaphorical but Reagan militarized the police so this was an actual war and it was aimed at the black community and so when Republicans say that liberals think we should apologize rather than be proud of America, I have to answer with the question, do you not think we should apologize? Also, why can't we do both? Just because I apologize for America doesn't mean I can't have gratitude as well. Our country is absolutely beautiful. My wife and I flew to Vegas and saw some amazing shows. We saw The Beatles' Love, Cirque du Soleil. We flew in a helicopter and landed in the Grand Canyon. I went to Chicago for the first time last year and we did the architectural boat tour learned about you know how our buildings were inspired by all different worldly ec- architecture and how american skyscrapers were copied all over the world because of their innovative designs we learned about one building that looked like a giant champagne bottle and in my opinion a, a middle finger too it's its architect designed it to mock prohibition you know we went to the top of willis tower we ate great food Um, We also just recently went to Denver, Colorado, and drove uh, from there to Snowmass. We went down and saw my sister in Colorado Springs. We took Independence Pass, the top of these huge mountain ranges, absolutely just breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, I recently listened to this audiobook uh, called Made in America by Bill Bryson, and uh, I learned how many of the foods that we eat uh, are actually American originals, like pizza, fettuccine, and even spaghetti and meatballs. This food we call Italian is actually American originals created here by Italian immigrants. The Caesar salad, lo mein, hamburgers, all American. The Wright brothers invented flight on the sand dunes of the Outer Banks in my home state of North Carolina. And in our lifetime, the iPhone and Netflix. America is a great country. And anyone who lives here and has enjoyed its cuisines and cities and parkways knows that it is undeniably great in many areas. But we also have areas we can improve. This, if you don't like it, you can leave, is ridiculous. I don't like a lot of it, but I don't want to leave. I want to stay, and I want to make it better. So next on the elephant list was secure border under Republican and open border under Democrat another on the list that has some truth. First, I'd like to read from Bill Bryson's wonderful book, Made in America. He explains America's historical problems with immigration. If one attitude can be said to characterize America's regard for immigration over the past 200 years, it is the belief that while immigration was unquestionably a wise and prescient thing in the case of one's parents or grandparents, It really ought to stop now. For 200 years, seceding generations of Americans have persuaded themselves that the country faced imminent social dislocation and eventual ruin at the hands of the grasping foreign hordes pouring through her ports. As early as the turn of the 19th century, Thomas Jefferson responded to calls for restrictions on immigration by asking... trifle plaintively shall we refuse the unhappy fugitives from distress that hospitality which the savages of the wilderness extend to our fathers arriving in this land though even he feared that immigrants with their unbounded lasciviousness would turn the United States into a heterogeneous incoherent distracted mass from the earliest days Immigrants aroused alarm and attracted epithets. I was against the wall, and I support immigration, but we need to figure this out. We have always been a country of immigrants, and this argument I hear from people that our ancestors learned the language and assimilated unlike these Mexicans just isn't true. Many European immigrants didn't learn the language and wanted to hold on to their old world traditions. But their children learned English and were quick to lose interest in old traditions and were assimilated because they wanted to be. I'm going to read another excerpt from Made in America by Bill Bryson. Children not only refused to learn their parents' language, but would reprove their parents for speaking it in front of strangers. As the historian Maldwin Allen Jones has put it, culturally estranged from their parents by their American education and wanting nothing so much as to become and to be accepted as Americans, many second-generation immigrants made deliberate efforts to rid themselves of their heritage. The adoption of American clothes, speech, and interests, often accompanied by the shedding of an exotic surname, were all part of a process whereby antecedents were repudiated as a means of improving status. Every immigrant who comes here should be required within five years to learn English or leave the country sparked Theodore Roosevelt in 1918. In fact, almost all did. Of the 13.4 million foreign-born inhabitants of the United States in 1930, all but 870,000 were deemed by census enumerators to have a workable grasp of English, and most of those who did not were recent arrivals or temporary residents, or felt themselves too old to learn. See? Teddy Roosevelt was upset at something for nothing. Same thing is happening today, and I think it's important that we learn from the past and realize that being an American that is accepting and tolerant of immigration will lead to immigrants that want to be a part of our culture and will naturally learn English as most do. Also, I think it would be a good thing if American children were taught to speak Spanish as well. But in the past... Immigrants have consistently learned English and abandoned their native tongues via their children, and the same thing will happen and is happening with Mexican immigrants. But the more we resist them, the longer it will take. And of course, the fear that they will change our culture somewhat is somewhat real. But that's another thing that makes this country great. Our culture is full of words and phrases and foods and ideas that come from all over the world because we are a country of immigrants. This idea that Mexico is all rapists and violent drug cartel members is absurd, to say the least. But of course, a small percentage of immigrants of any group will be violent and commit crimes. But the reasons most of them are fleeing their countries to come here are because of drug gang violence, and this is a problem that the U.S. started in the first place by pressuring them to follow our lead in outlawing drugs and is perpetuated by our continued desire to use drugs. Who do you think funds the cartels with money and supplies and supplies them with weapons? We do. If we ended the drug war and helped them rebuild, we could not only solve the immigration problem and drug problem and cartel problem, but we could put an end to human trafficking. If you are a one-issue voter and your one issue is abortion because you care so much about human life, I have to ask you, why are you not equally concerned with the humanitarian crisis our drug war has caused? In 2018, Mexico reported 33,000 murders. And I'll bring up religion because this seems to be a big concern in the Christian community. Most Mexicans are religious, they're Catholic, and they worship Jesus too. And a Mexican family with daughters has a real chance of losing them into the human trafficking trade. A cartel member will approach the father and tell him they have come for his daughter, and if he resists, he and his family will be murdered and she will be taken anyway so he has no choice but to hand over his daughter. And then, when he goes to the police, they offer no help because they are either on the cartel's payroll or they are scared of the cartel. The true power backing the cartel's human trafficking division is funded entirely by our illegal drug money and enforced with our guns. As far as liberals wanting open borders, I think we need to rethink what our actual goal is. And no, we should not and do not have an open border Mexico is a beautiful country, as is all the middle and South American countries. If we end the drug war, legalize the drug trade, and work towards fair trade initiatives and allow their leaders to create mandatory reinvestment from American companies that do business there, and allow their farmers and miners' rights as workers, these are all things they have tried in the past. The CIA has worked with militias to overthrow their leaders and put someone in power who will allow U.S. businesses to continue to exploit and plunder. Another thing you'd have to be pretty cold-hearted not to think deserves an apology. If we work with these countries, the immigration problem would be solved. They would have no reason to migrate here, and in fact, many would have reasons to migrate to those countries as they are absolutely beautiful. So this idea that liberals want an open border and conservatives want a secure border is much more complicated. And the word secure is misleading. Because it is secure for the most part in the sense that we don't have a problem with bombs and terrorists coming in freely and attacking our cities. We have had attacks, but almost all attempts are stopped because we have a secure border. If we want to solve the immigration and humanitarian crisis at the border, we need to start working with those countries and helping them repair and rebuild. And it starts with better economic policies, ending exploitive practices by U.S. companies, and ending the drug war and legalizing and regulating the drug trade. Next on the list, Republicans want to defend the police and liberals want to defund the police. On this, I agree that the elephant list is spot on. Our police force has every right and arguably more rights than citizens. When they kick in a door and shoot a citizen in their own home, They are rarely ever charged with a crime, even if they got the wrong house and the man wasn't armed. This idea that we should defend the police makes no sense other than to say that Republicans believe we should defend the police when they shoot unarmed people, which I completely disagree with. I 100% agree with defunding them, but this sounds insane on its surface. Police need funds to protect us. And so I don't think, and I don't think any logical liberal thinks, we should defund them entirely. But we have added billions of dollars to their budgets, militarizing them to fight an unwinnable drug war, and this has been devastating to our society. This is where people like Brianna Taylor have been shot in their own homes by officers kicking in doors and shooting, all in an attempt to find drugs. Before Reagan, the police budget was minuscule compared to what it is now. They had less officers, and their main objective in policing was solving violent crimes, which were far less common before the drug war. I'm going to read again from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. The transformation from community policing to military policing began in 1981 when President Reagan persuaded Congress to pass the Military Cooperation with Law Enforcement Act which encouraged the military to give local, state, and federal police access to military bases, intelligence, research, weaponry, and other equipment for drug interdiction. That legislation carved a huge exception to the Posse Comitatus Act, the Civil War-era law prohibiting the use of the military for civilian policing. It was followed by Reagan's National Security Decision Directive, which declared drugs a threat to U.S. national security, and provided for yet more cooperation between local, state, and federal law enforcement. In the years that followed, Presidents George Bush and Bill Clinton enthusiastically embraced the drug war and increased the transfer of military equipment, technology, and training to local law enforcement. Contingent, of course, on the willingness of agencies to prioritize drug law enforcement and concentrate resources on arrests for illegal drugs. And she also says... Almost immediately after the federal dollars began to flow, law enforcement agencies across the country began to compete for funding, equipment, and training. By the late 1990s, the overwhelming majority of state and local police forces in the country had availed themselves of the newly available resources and added a significant military component to buttress their drug war operations. According to the Cato Institute, in 1997 alone, the Pentagon handed over more than 1.2 million pieces of military equipment to local police departments. Similarly, the National Journal reported that between January 1997 and October 1999, the agency handled 3.4 million orders of Pentagon equipment from over 11,000 domestic police agencies in all 50 states. Included in the bounty were 253 aircraft, including six and seven passenger airplanes, UH UH-60 Black Hawk and UH UH-1 Huey helicopters, 7,856 M16 rifles, 181 grenade launchers, 8,131 bulletproof helmets, and 1,161 pairs of night vision goggles. A retired police chief in New Haven, Connecticut told the New York Times, I was offered tanks, bazookas, anything I wanted. We should defund the drug war and demilitarize the police and regulate the drug trade. This would essentially defund the police other than allowing that they keep a budget for solving real crimes by catching violent people. I am 100% for this. The elephant list reiterates its point with under another column, Republicans are for legal immigration and Democrats are for illegal immigration. Let's just face it. Republicans do not like Mexicans. Their number one chant was build that wall. I don't think most Democrats want illegal immigration. We want legal immigration to be easier for those who are coming here to work. We are a country that was built on immigration, the melting pot. What are the words inscribed on our wonderful Statue of Liberty? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If you look at immigrants and how they were treated over time, the darker the skin, the harder it was to find acceptance. We need to be tolerant of immigration from our southern border. They are coming from lands that are destitute from trade laws that benefit our companies and exploit them to the point of dying horrible deaths from being overworked with horrible breathing conditions in mines and malnutrition from living on scraps, conditions that were negotiated with corrupt leaders that our CIA helped to place in power so that our corporations could exploit them. Our neighbors to the south who live on lands vastly more rich in minerals and raw materials than our own and yet we are the ones who got rich from it. The West has been exploiting those people for hundreds of years, first the European countries and then the U.S. I'm going to read from Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. Latin America is the region of open veins. Everything from the discovery until our times has always been transmuted into European or later United States capital and as such, has accumulated in distant centers of power. Everything, the soil, its fruits, and its mineral-rich depths, the people and their capacity to work and to consume natural resources and human resources. Production methods and class structure have been successfully determined from outside for each area by meshing it into the universal gearbox of capitalism. To each area has been assigned a function, always for the benefit of the foreign metropolis of the moment, and the endless chain of dependency has been endlessly extended. The chain has many more than two links. In Latin America, it also includes the oppression of small countries by their larger neighbors and, within each country's frontiers, the exploitation by big cities and ports of their internal sources of food and labor. Four centuries ago, 16 of today's 20 biggest Latin American cities already existed. For those who see history as a competition, Latin America's backwardness and poverty are merely the result of its failure. We lost, others won. But the winners happen to have won thanks to our losing. The history of Latin America's underdevelopment is, as someone has said, an integral part of the history of world capitalism's development. Eduardo Galeano also writes that along the way, we have even lost the right to call ourselves Americans. Although the Haitians and the Cubans appeared in history as new people a century before the Mayflower Pigments settled on the Plymouth coast. For the world today, America is just the United States. The region we inhabit is a sub-America, a second-class America of nebulous identity. Latin America has been devastated economically by our corporate capitalist interests. And now, their countries are being ravaged by the consequences of a drug war that we started and that we forced on them. And their cartels are being funded by U.S. money and guns. Think about this. A major corporation banks off exploiting Guatemalan labor and resources, and the executives all hop on a yacht and snort cocaine and drink themselves stupid to celebrate their success. This hypothetical boat party is a real and common daily occurrence. I've done coke with doctors, lawyers, plenty of silver spoon frat boys. So on this boat, they are celebrating money they were able to make by exploiting Guatemalans. They use some of the money to buy drugs, which give profit to murderous drug cartels that are destroying the lives of everyone in countries like Guatemala. They snort it on their yacht with little to no worry of ever being arrested for using cocaine while inner city kids are serving life sentences for possessing the exact same drug. And those same guys support building the wall. What the left is wanting isn't an open border and illegal immigration. We want compassion and we want to actually work with our neighbors and help them solve the problems that we helped create. I think the right needs to admit that the real reason they don't want to listen to this argument is because they do not give a shit about what happens to the people that we have exploited or the people that have been murdered, raped, and sold into sexual slavery. They are tired of the left pointing these things out. They wish the left would just shut up so they could all live in the paradise that unfair trade laws have created. They don't want to hear a study that suggests we need to eat less beef and consume less oil or climate change will become irreversible. They are kids at a party, and they have caught the house on fire, and they are tired of the nerdy kids pointing out the flames and being party poopers. And all the evangelicals are right-wingers, and they believe that Jesus is coming back to rapture them, and that it will happen in their lifetime, and with this, the world will end, so they do not fear climate change. They pray for it. All right, got off track a little going from immigration to climate change, but I'm glad I did, because the elephant list forgot to add denying science under Republican and listening to science under Democrat. Next on the list is personal responsibility versus government control. This is the idea that the government shouldn't have to help you. You get what you work for, and if you're too lazy to work, you can lie in the bed you made. In a perfect world where everyone was given an equal shot, maybe this would make more sense. But we have people born with debilitating physical and mental conditions, childhood trauma that leads to addiction, arrests for nonviolent drug use that leads to unemployment. We have single mothers who can barely pay rent. And now, with Roe v. Wade reversed, there will be thousands more, and none of these trigger states, which are immediately outlawing abortions, have offered mandatory pay for maternity leave and housing for lower-class single mothers. There are myriad reasons why we need a safety net for people who fall. I understand the complaint coming from the right, that the government is extremely inefficient at funneling tax money from the rich to the poor and disenfranchised. And they are right. We just watched hundreds of billions of COVID relief money go to waste, most of it not going to who it was supposed to help. We need to fix this problem. We need to hold our elected officials responsible when the money goes missing or goes into the wrong pockets. But we can't give up on government as being the best option for the social programs. I hear conservatives say that it should be local government, local communities, and the church. I support them helping as well, but corruption can be found anywhere. And the smaller the town, the easier this idea will work. Take federal funding from public housing in a major city and tell the churches and mayor's office to figure it out and people will suffer. We need to be more efficient. Why does single ho- a single housing unit for a homeless person in California cost almost a million dollars to build? That's preposterous. We need to stop it with the bullshit. People need help, and we need to have a government that can help people, but one that can do it efficiently. But this idea that government programs are evil is bullshit. We have a huge problem with homelessness and mental illness, and there is no local community or church that is going to fix it. I will say this. I do understand concerns coming from the right when they ask things like, so I avoid going out and having fun, I don't go to movies and work almost full time while also in school full time, and then after 10 years of sacrifice, I finally landed a job making six figures, still working 50 hours a week, but now I can see a movie, catch a show, have a drink, and take a vacation. But then I have to pay taxes to subsidize the income of someone who went to, went to the movies and went to the bar and didn't go to school and ended up having kids they can't pay for and now they're unemployed. Like I get that argument, but the reality is usually much more complex. Some people have the discipline and the education and genes and solid family and solid upbringing that leads them to achieve the six-figure job. And by no means am I saying they didn't also have to work hard and sacrifice leisure. But if someone else doesn't have the discipline and is prone to instant gratification— I don't think they should be subjected to a life of barely scraping by. I think we need to have a a better education and after school programs for youth and better mental health programs to mitigate some of these behaviors. And I also believe in rewarding people who make sacrifices and put in the hard work. By all means, we need people to be driven and to innovate. And if everyone were equal, no matter the work they did, then a lot less would be accomplished. I, I don't believe a utopian society would have innovated as fast and maybe not at all things like the internet and iPhone and flight. But I do think that we need to help those who are less driven and we need to care for those who make mistakes. I hear people on the right all the time saying things like, I believe you get what you work for. And if you're not willing to work for it, that's on you. I've heard that said to me with a tone implying I was probably a liberal because I wanted a handout. I work my ass off and I pay my own way. I've never been on government assistance, but also I had family support. Leniency when I was arrested that I now attribute to a phrase that conservatives hate. White privilege. And white privilege didn't stop me from being arrested, as officers will apply the law to anyone of any race when they are financially incentivized to do so. Though my chances of having that encounter was much lower in a white suburban neighborhood. I was extremely careless when I got caught. But white privilege definitely contributed to my felony being reduced to a misdemeanor and my jail time suspended to probation with community service. I even remember my lawyer's defense when he told the judge that I I was a good kid, just got mixed up in the wrong crowd. I was the wrong crowd. This defense is basically, he's a white man who got mixed up with the wrong crowd, which translates to images of drug dealers, which because of the news and television and targeted searching and arresting in colored neighborhoods, the image of a drug dealer is a person with darker skin. Essentially, my lawyer said, Your Honor, the defendant is a white man who is victimized by the influence of the blacks. And it worked. Also, another pillage I have had, though my family was by no means rich, I was always able to find the money to pay fines and to get a lawyer. These two things are huge. So by the nature of our court system, the poor are immediately at a disadvantage when they are arrested because they can't afford a good lawyer and they can't pay court fines and probation costs. And... Being poor in and of itself puts you at a much greater risk of being arrested in the first place. Cops patrol and randomly search and serve warrants almost exclusively in poor neighborhoods. One last but important point when Republicans claim to be the party of personal responsibility against government control is that without a certain level of government control, we would have chaos. How is it that the party saying they're against government control is also the party that is all about increasing police and military budgets? If it weren't for government regulation, we wouldn't have clean natural water supply left in this country, or clean air to breathe. We need government, but I do think it needs to be more efficient, and we need to somehow get money out of politics because corporate America has bought the vote by manipulating the voters with TV ads. The political TV ad is not held to any journalistic standard. They can legally tell bold faced lies. And they are protected by the First Amendment, which was never intended to be used in that sort of nefarious way. And the whole personal responsibility versus government control dates back to FDR's New Deal, when the government had to step in and help the poor. And with the black people being the nation's poorest, they were helped slightly more than the working class whites. The Republican Party was the party of wealth and of the ruling class. The Democrats were the party of the working class. The Republican states were all northern and the southern states were blue. The Republicans preyed on the working class whites' racism, which has a long history, going back to the plantations where white indentured servants and black slaves were always fighting for a leg up. And sometimes they would join forces and rebel and could actually easily have overthrown the ruling class. So the ruling class decided then to maintain control. They gave the white workers slightly better pay and living conditions while also spreading lies about the Africans' inherent inferiority intellectually. So racism was ingrained in American working class culture. So how could the Republican Party get the white working class to vote against their own interests and vote for tax breaks for the rich? Appeal to their racism. Look what your Democrat President FDR did. He's bailing out the blacks who are lazy and don't want to work with your hard-earned tax money. This was their rhetoric. I am in no way saying the black people were lazy. They were disproportionately poor and work was scarce during the Great Depression for everyone. I saw a bumper sticker on a truck that captured the right-wing sentiment perfectly. It said, if you can't feed them, don't breed them. The government is not your baby daddy. Clearly racist in its use of baby daddy. And it highlighted the belief that black women are just having kids to collect checks because they're lazy and don't want to work. Few things there. Having children and raising them seems like a pretty odd way to avoid work for a lazy person. And where are a lot of the black women's babies, daddies? Oh that's right. They're locked in a cage somewhere. And one of the saddest realities here is how the black men locked in cages have been perceived, and not just by society, but by their own families. The propaganda of the drug war and the labeling them as criminals who had a choice was highly effective. I want to read an excerpt from Michelle Alexander's latest edition of The New Jim Crow, where she highlights this in her introduction. Black men. Why focus on black men? This question is usually asked by black women. They want to know what inspired me to write a book specifically focused on the experience of black men in the war on drugs. Some women express deep gratitude for this approach. After reading the book, they say they were able to view their relationships with their husbands, partners, fathers, uncles, brothers, cousins, and sons through a different lens. One middle-aged black woman told me, through tears, that she had not spoken to her father in more than 30 years. But after reading this book, she visited him in prison for the first time since childhood. She realized that she had blamed her father for leaving her in her youth. The book helped her to see how his disappearance was largely a product of forces and systems beyond his control. Her experience is not unique. Over the years, many women have shared with me that reading The New Jim Crow allowed them to release some of the hurt and anger they felt toward black men in their lives. Men they felt had betrayed them by returning to prison after promises not to do so, or had failed to secure jobs or housing upon their release and were therefore unable to help support their families. As one woman put it, I'm still angry that he can't seem to get a good job and that he's been rearrested twice and that I'm the one who has to feed our kids and bail him out. But now I don't just blame him. I see this whole system is working to keep us down and I want to do something about it. So this argument that it's about personal responsibility versus government control is flawed to the core when systemic racism is at play. We need the government to protect the disenfranchised and we need to allow personal responsibility to happen under much fairer circumstances. Trust, if you look at history, that every black family after slavery was abolished, wanted to work hard and build lives and careers and community for their families and never expected a free handout as that was something they would never have counted on. Their freedom was new and for them that was a gift alone. They just wanted the fair chance to work and build their communities and be able to enjoy their families. The personal responsibility argument is always aimed at African Americans, and it's a tired and ignorant point. And this has illuminated most in the successes that African Americans have achieved in spite of living in a country that has tried their damnedest to keep them from achieving it. Next on the elephant list, Republicans believe that all lives matter. Democrats believe that some lives matter. Now, it must be immediately addressed that the slogan, some lives matter, has never been said by Democrats or liberals. This is referring, obviously, to the Black Lives Matter movement. The movement never said only Black Lives Matter. It basically is saying Black Lives Matter also because unarmed black men are being disproportionately shot by police officers all over the country, and it would seem that America needed to be told that black lives matter, where they never needed reminding that a white man's life mattered. Now, you may have heard in response to this that white people get shot just as often. In fact, this is true. The same number of white men are shot on average every year as black men. But this statistic only proves my point when you consider that the U.S. population is 60% white and only 13% black. A black man is actually six times more likely to be shot by the police than a white man. And while black men make up only 6% of the general population, they make up 40% of the incarcerated. Now, I've heard all, this, all the counterarguments to this. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, when Keith Lamont Scott was gunned down by officers in front of his home. He was told to show his hands when officers smelled pot, and he refused. The officer thought he was reaching for a gun and shot and killed him. Never mind that they weren't there to investigate someone smoking pot and were there to serve a warrant on someone else. I was in Charlotte when the protests started, and some turned very mildly violent. I heard many white folk ask out loud, why Keith Lamont Scott didn't obey the officer as if he was somehow deserving of being shot and killed for smoking weed and not complying. I heard this when Freddie Gray was roughed up and died in the back of that police van in Baltimore. He was a criminal and had he not been a criminal, he wouldn't have been in that place in the first place. These men were not sentenced by any court of law to death and no crime they had committed would have ever got them a death sentence. I hear the argument from white folk too often who can't understand why they didn't just fully comply with law enforcement. You cannot make that argument if you have never walked in their shoes. How many times do you comply with authoritarian bullshit, prejudice, racism? How many times do you lift up your arms and surrender to authority for a random search when you have done nothing wrong before you look at that officer in the eye and say, you know what? Not today. I'm going to sit right here and keep living my life. I wasn't bothering you or anyone, and I'm done getting patted down and arrested and kicked around and treated less than human. And I know a lot of the white folk I hear asking these questions, they're freedom-loving, gun-owning people who would not stand for that shit after the first time it happened. You're the party of less government control, right? Right but you can't seem to wrap your head around someone not wanting to be harassed relentlessly by the government. Please, put yourself in their place and ask yourself if they deserve to die, if their mothers deserve to bury them. Another problem is that TV and films and news media have painted the black man as a dangerous criminal, so cops are subconsciously scared of them, creating a pretty precarious situation for a black man when that armed officer is their only protection. I read a study where law enforcement officers did a virtual simulation where they had to decide if a person was holding a gun or a wallet and make a split decision not to shoot or to shoot. And if the person had dark skin, officers were more likely to mistake a wallet for a gun and shoot. If they had white skin, officers were more likely to mistake a gun for a wallet. So finally, in 2013, the people had enough and were done being silent and took to the streets proclaiming Black Lives Matter. This movement pissed off the right-wingers, and so they decided they would start a movement of their own in juxtaposition to Black Lives Matter, called Blue Lives Matter. As if cops have been discriminated against and constantly locked in cages and barred from society through legal forms of discrimination like probation and felony records— and they are the descendants of slaves. Whether or not the life of a police officer mattered was never up for debate. No one says they don't matter. Black men, however, have been told in many more ways than one that they don't matter. So their movement was important, and all of us should be saying Black Lives Matter. Those that oppose it always point at the riots and the violence and looting and burning. Make no mistake, I don't support violence in the streets, but neither did anyone that took the Black Lives Matter movement seriously. The activists that marched did so peacefully, knowing that any form of rioting would hurt the movement. But when opportunities for violence and looting arise, there will always be people ready for mayhem. And there will always be followers, people who were angry and planning on marching peacefully. But when they saw violence, they followed because they were rightfully angry. I'm reminded of a White Stripes line in one of their songs. You can't burn down my house and then get mad at my reaction. Those protests were in reaction to police brutality. The whole Blue Lives Matter movement got me thinking. I grew up in the South, and racism was everywhere. I remember my dad telling me about a guy he worked with that used a code word for black people so he could talk disparagingly about them in public and even in their presence, though I'm sure they knew exactly what he was saying. He called them Smurfs. You know, the little cartoon blue people? He thought that was a good nickname for African Americans because, I don't know, he thought their skin colors were both weird, not white. I don't know. I bring this up because it made me think about when Blue Lives Matter would be a legitimate movement. If Smurfs were real and they were being systematically oppressed and shot unarmed at a rate six times higher than their white counterparts and they were incarcerated at a rate five times higher, and when they were the target of a militarized police force fighting an unwinnable war on drugs. That's when a Blue Lives Matter movement would actually be justified. Blue Lives Matter as a movement only makes sense in a world where Smurfs are real and blue is the color of your fucking skin. You can refuse to arrest people for nonviolent bullshit drug offenses. You can quit a job. You can take off a uniform. But you can't change the color of your skin and no one should ever have to wish that they had that option. All right, Nicks. That's going to be it for part one of Elephant in the Room. I've decided to break it down into two parts because the last issue I wanted to discuss from the elephant list was abortion. And it's become the most divisive and the most important the biggest issue in our country so next week i'll be releasing part two of elephant in the room the whole thing will be covering the abortion issue and my wife will be joining me because i've asked her to take the lead on this one i think it's important that we have this discussion but i also don't want to be just another man explaining women's rights my wife was happy to do it So she'll be doing this, and we will hopefully have that ready for you next week. Thank you so much for listening. I know this is a lot. We've covered a whole lot. And um, again, if you completely disagree with some of the things I said or if I got something wrong, please message me. I'm the only Aaron Akulis on Facebook. Shoot me a message. And um, I really, the biggest thing, I think the most important thing in, in our country is that we start treating each other as if we're all brothers and sisters, that we're all Americans and we can disagree, we're going to disagree, but we have to, to treat each other respectfully, listen to each other's thoughts. And um, that's gonna be it for me this week. So I'm gonna let Meg take us out with some piano.